What's going on, everyone? We back with another episode, all about the data podcast. Y'all already know what time it is. We got another special guest in the building for you, so y'all already know it's going down. We gonna have some insights for you, and we got the whole squad back with us. We turn it up. We got lucky. We got niece. We got Jafar, but it's a holiday right now. I'm about to go turn up after this. It's not a holiday. Sir. <laughs> Uh, it, feels to have, it feels good to have everybody back. Uh, it's good to have the squad back. Mm-hmm. And we got a special guest from Google. So you already know we've been turning it up with Amazon, but now we're going to switch it on over to Google. Y'all know I'm a big Google fan. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest. So we have the beautiful Sashe. Uh, she is a data leader at Google, specializing in making Google search a more inclusive and equitable platform for all users. Um, she leans on her curiosity, travels, and multifaceted identity to challenge the status quo personally and professionally. Um, in her free time, you can catch her buying toys for her lab mix, trying new restaurants, trying different wellness techniques, or tending to the 50-plus plants that make up her indoor garden. So, Shasha, you want to introduce yourself a little bit more just to give the people more background of who you are and what you do at Google? Yeah, some of the yeah. plants. you know okay i'm gonna take y'all to the plants first because that's like my favorite part (laughs) all right we gotta take this blur off we get to see the plants (laughs) y'all get to see not only my plants going down my make sure y'all watch the greenhouse on youtube now oh Oh, wow wow that's cool let's say i love that the cases yes Y'all see my little cheetahs in the background? Jaguar, <laughs> yes. whatever they are. And Your I, little yeah, wallpaper, that's so more. cute. That's cool. the meat. Wow. This is the baby. Oh, look at <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Those are my 50 plus plants that I nurture on a daily basis because I am a nurturing person. Um, but <laughs> for more on background, I studied international relations. Or let me start way back. I'm from Dallas. Um, so Oh, me too. Nice. Really? Yes. Texas in the house. Okay. Okay. Do, now, did we have to take I'm it from, that far? I'm from, I'm from Houston. So, yeah, we live. Oh, okay. All of Texas in the house. He's lying. He is not from Houston. <laughs> we have a rule. If it comes out within three seconds, it's probably a lie. Three seconds. Exactly. Lie. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, so by way of Texas, went to study in Boston, which was very, very cold and different. Uh, Made my way down to D.C. And that's where people go when you study international relations. Found myself at a think tank, decided I don't want to be poor. So I went into consulting. And that's like where I really started to hone in on most of my data skills. So bounced around at a couple consulting firms doing data analytics for different government agencies and then decided at that point that, you know, I don't really like the churn that exists in consulting. It's a great opportunity for people that Mm -hmm. are early career because you can try your hand out a bunch of different, bunch of different topics. So I did data as it applies to like survey data, 
<clears throat> and funding emergency management, uh, states and local governments. Then I pivoted over to the Navy and did financial analytics, which uh, was cool. I really liked my team. I don't know if I would ever really do financial analytics again specifically, but my team was really great. And then went back and did Homeland Security again before I decided like, you know, I, I want to adhere to one person's mission, which is what really attracted me to Google and just tech in general. I think there's a lot of innovation, but at its core, you have a group of people that buy into one mission from different perspectives, have different um, creative looks on what that mission can look like for their communities, for their internet infrastructure, for really like the entire world. And I thought that was really cool, especially about Google specifically. So that's where I've been for the past two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Sounds cool. Nice. So cool. That's like dope. That, starting as a consultant. <laughs> yeah. I think I that's a good think idea. Consulting actually. is a great first job for anyone. Uh mm-hmm. when I was at Deloitte, I hope no one <laughs> gets mad, but they they literally would say, like, for the people coming out of college, like, you know nothing. So we <laughs> teach you everything. Mm-hmm. Um, like yeah. it doesn't really matter what your background is. There are a core set of skills that I think you get in consulting, especially like client, how to work with clients, how to have like polished presentations. Um, there's a lot of organization and structure. So you learn a lot of project and program management as well as like metrics, metrics, all the data terms that you see across the board, but, um, learning how to quantify success in different projects and different inputs, I think is something that really helps when you are pitching yourself externally outside of the consulting world um, to really show like, I've been able to make this kind of progress, which Mm -hmm. ties into your resume a lot. That's something that I see a lot in data resumes is people don't really add numbers. Um, Yeah, that's something I learned recently. When you're saying consultant, do you mean like, you get hired at a company to do their IT consultant or are you like freelance, like consultant and companies are coming to you? Oh, uh, no. So that is one thing. If you want to do the freelance route, that is incredibly entrepreneurial. I do not have that kind of spirit. Um, <laughs> but I meant in like in a consulting company. So EY, oh, Deloitte, gotcha. Booz Allen. Yeah. Okay, I get what you mean now. All right. Cool, cool. Noted, noted, noted. <laughs> yeah, I really liked plug for Booz Allen. I liked my time at Booz Allen a lot. And I think if you're looking for early data support, Booz Allen is a pretty great company um, because they have such a rounded infrastructure around teaching people. Um, they've invested a lot in their data science programs and data science contracts. So there are a lot of opportunities coming up out there. What was it called? Nice. Booz Allen. Booz Allen Hamilton. Yeah. I've been seeing Booz the Allen Hamilton too. I have seen Shout out to Booz Allen. Program. Booz, what? Yeah. I say it again. I got tongue twisted. <laughs> it's Booz Allen Hamilton. B-O-O-Z. Booz Allen Hamilton. Shout out to them representing all the little bit of people <laughs> out here. Mm-hmm. So they can get jobs and get on their merry way. <laughs> we appreciate y'all. <laughs> cool, cool. So since you were a kid, um, kid or like a teen were you always like into tech or what were some of your interests growing up 
Oh, interests definitely diverge from what like my family, of course, wanted. Uh, I'm a millennial, so I was in, I existed before the internet. And I remember that my parents are both really into computers. Uh, my dad had built a shed in our backyard when I lived in Seattle. And that was like a computer lab. He would like he was very much on the hardware side. So at any given point, he'd probably have like 10 different kinds of computers that were all half made, half done that he was rebuilding or fixing. So I got introduced to tech from like a hardware perspective just because uh, of my dad. But it was also very fun from the like putting a puzzle together, like Hardware has to go in a specific place. Like all of the pieces of the motherboard, all of the wires have a specific place to go in order to be functional. So I really liked the pattern part of that kind of stuff, which really did lend itself to data. I just being a first gen American, I was, I'm an Ethiopian American. Uh, I was a bit limited by what everyone around me is doing. Like I, we Ethiopian communities are very large in certain areas like Dallas and Seattle. So you kind of get um, a bit siloed into your community. So that idea of like mentorship and uh, peer networking and stuff uh, was very limited to what everyone wants you to be a doctor an engineer, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So I, wasn't very exposed to though like anything really in tech like software data product management it i was very focused on like all right i don't want to do that so i'm going to be a creative so i <laughs> wanted to study art history i wanted to go into fashion i wanted to do all those those kinds of things but i ended up studying human geography which neither here nor there. I studied it for one semester at Boston University and the program effectively shut down because I was the only person taking the coursework (laughs) for it. So that's actually how I got into international relations because they were like, you're the human geographer. Like ain't nobody else in this program with you. So you can either transition out or transition schools if that's really what your passion is. Um, So in human geography is a learning about people and their push and pull patterns. So why people move around the world, Uh, the geography side of it is a lot of mapping. So you can get really creative with maps. So that was more of my outlet. Um, And so technology for me then became more theoretical, like, oh, if you have this population in sub-Saharan Africa that doesn't have access to internet um, or like how can you increase mobile banking in this area based on um, like the pricing for buying data packages and stuff. So everything became very theoretical until I realized you can't really monetize on theory unless you get like a master's or a PhD because then no one really cares what you have to say (laughs) until then. So tech went from being very tangible to very abstract and then back to very tangible again from the data side of things when I was introduced to or when I got my first consulting job and landed on a data heavy project. Okay, cool, cool. 
<clears throat> so what would you say like drew you to data analytics? Uh, going back to like patterns and puzzles and things, data, the first data product that I was on, we were pretty much like, here's a bunch of data, a bunch of survey data that we recently stood up to try and measure how states um, can handle uh, a set of types of threats. So whether it be like active shooter threats or a natural disaster, like a hurricane or flooding, uh, we went out and surveyed all of the states um, in the U.S. And now you need to like tell us what they told you. So how prepared are they? So the using data to answer the question of how prepared are they uh, put a new lens on like theory and how to help the world. It actually gave me hard skills and hard numbers to be able to quantify how we're moving towards success or in that case the goal is like can you effectively handle x scale of x or y natural disaster so that felt very real and i think that was what became very even more exciting to me was that uh the numbers that i was crafting and the slide decks i was making because you don't really get out of slide deck making, no matter where you are in your career. Um, but being able to put numbers on those slide decks to let people know like, hey, this is where you need to like augment your supplies, or this is where you need more training to address this type of thing, or you have or US state have like X number of cots, and this adjacent state has Y number of cots, maybe you should uh, create a uh, as a, an agreement amongst yourselves that if X state has whatever natural disaster and it doesn't impact Y state, y'all will create a way to funnel those costs in between you also regionally, at least you're prepared. Whoa, so being okay. able Sound like a whole lesson right now. I'm digging <laughs> that. <laughs> well, they should have had you in the Google course. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh man that course was lit though but it kind of kind of piggybacking off what he's saying so i want to know like because you, you got drawn into data analytics and um with everything you said uh, what made you not choose data science over data analytics um oh i am not that interested i probably shouldn't say that in predicting <laughs> the future <laughs> Like the, the modeling and the stats. So I use stats in my day to day in a way to be able to uh, draw correlations or to understand significance, but I don't necessarily want to like forecast mm. or be able or have to dig into the regressions. I really like the people side of things a lot. And I think analytics gives you more people interaction than data mm -hmm. science does. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I'm in marketing. And as you said that, all I all that went through my mind was marketing. And um Yeah. Yeah, all that mm -hmm. like the forecasting. Um mm -hmm. so now you got me thinking because I was staying away from data science, but I may mm -hmm. I, I may have to investigate it further now. <laughs> no, data science is really great, especially yeah. if you want to use your data skills in like other types of roles. So I don't know if you've seen, I've like started blogging about 100 days of product management. Um, and some of those data science skills, like p-values, 
time series can really bolster your repertoire as you're talking to engineering teams and to leadership. So leadership at the high level of data want to understand the progress that we're making towards metrics. But when you're talking to engineers, they want to get nitty gritty into the numbers. So data science actually is a really, at least knowing the terminology in data science can really help you strengthen your relationships working with engineering teams because they're like, all right, this data set, how do we, uh, like what is the loss rate of our classifier and stuff. So data science can really help you build stronger relationships with engineering teams if you want to, either go into like technical program management or product management. So if you want to basically use your data skills in other types of roles. Interesting. I'm signing up today. <laughs> you got me so How much stuff you have on your plate now? Every time you have a guest, you want to sign up, do stuff that they did or they did. I know, mm-hmm. right? My, 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 uh, <laughs> let's, I'm booked all the way till 2036 at this point. So. <laughs> I believe so, it. What did your parents think about your area of study? Like, were they all for it or did they think like it wasn't what they Heck no. <laughs> I did not do the traditional route. I yeah. don't think my parents respected my decision to do what I wanted to do until I like could start helping them out. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, okay. You forged a path enough for you to be financially independent, successful. And now you're like, giving back to the community and to your family. Um, So that was like, you know, all through college, which is four years, it probably took me two to three years to be successful or at least financially independent. So Mm. yeah, seven years of my life, they approved of disapproved of all my decision making. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because I'd be trying to tell people you do not need to rush your process. Like, yeah, yeah. I just, I just made a status about that the other day. Actually, I was like, you know, the, the money's going to come just focus on gaining the experience and the skill set and you're going to kick doors down, you know? Yeah. You can't beat time, man. Don't don't the, don't press don't press next in the course just to get the certificate. Run yeah. through it. Took me five months right. to take that Google course. Five months. I bet you gained so much knowledge. And also, yeah, these courses are really great for building a pro- portfolios. Like yeah. I've been seeing. Um, I love when people are vulnerable on social media. So. I saw a post like weeks ago where someone was like, Hey, I'm in, I think they were in the Google user experience design course. And they were like, I'd really love feedback on this mock-up I did. And after that, I saw more and more people start posting the mock-ups that they're doing. And it's like, that is fantastic. Not only Mm -hmm. are you getting a mock-up for your portfolio, but you're getting real-time feedback from either customers or like users or uh, opportunities from the other side. So people you're getting like tips and tricks from actual UX people. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I think that helps everyone. Like people who's just starting out people like who's looking for people to hire, like to get an idea of what's going on right now. So yeah, yeah I think that's they awesome. can read through the feedback and kind of see what they would be mm-hmm. getting in that same instance. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Nah, most stuff. <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, I never asked you, what, what obstacles did you face as far as like getting into data analytics? And besides your parents, like how was the support or did you, like what made you keep going even though you didn't have their support? 
Uh, that mug was awesome, by the way. I love that mug. I think it. <laughs> yeah, it is cute. <laughs> uh, okay, obstacles. I would say that I think my parents actually kind of tie into the obstacles. I've faced a lot of imposter syndrome throughout my career um, from multiple sides of it. So when someone is telling you that the career path you chose or the education you chose uh, won't lead to success. That's like, especially from people that let's say are, are, or parenting takes many forms. The U S centric view of parenting is like, you're a cheerleader. They're always at every soccer game cheering you Mm -hmm. off at the sideline. It doesn't make any, it doesn't matter any like decision you make. They're always going to cheer for you. But as an immigrant, like your family risked everything. So being here for you to have a different life. So being here and not going on a path of what is traditionally equated to success um, is scary. So Mm -hmm. then having that fear of like, can I actually be successful? Can I navigate social media? Can I navigate networking? Can I navigate living in an entirely new city away from everyone? Um, just already kind of puts a level of fear into you. And on top of that, then the job market as a person of color and a woman um, tends to downrank your value. Um, so my very first job, actually, uh, they used to host uh, monthly, probably happy hours where they'd like buy out a bar and we'd be there all night, free drinks, free food. And in one of those like drunken nights, someone in HR was like, you know, you're the lowest paid analyst, like at the company. I was like, oh, great. And I'm the only black woman too. So even more wonderful, this sucks. Um, And of course she wasn't supposed to tell me that. So it was just something I kind of internalized, like, why am I getting phenomenal ratings? And yet I'm paid less than everyone else. So when I got promoted, um, like a year and a half, two years later, uh, our company was actually being acquired. So not only did I get a raise from the promotion, but because our company was being acquired, they had to normalize salaries and I had to get another salary bump because I wasn't in the band for my peers Mm -hmm. at that company. So it was like, all right, that's also another shot to the ego. Is that because I don't have a formal data background? Is that because I don't have all these certificates? Like what is making people feel or how, why am I not accurately communicating my value? And why isn't my value being accurately represented in monetary Mm -hmm. gain? So that's something I struggled with kind of a lot or not even kind of a lot, a lot. And that actually even led into my Google interview. I distinctly remember feeling like the, uh, I was, so I'd never been to San Francisco uh, until my Google interview. So there, the train at the San Francisco airport, like takes you around the, the city so that you see the mountains and the Mm. sun was setting. And I distinctly remember sitting at the back of the train, looking at the mountains, like I'll never see these mountains again. I'll never see the sunset again. That interview went so terribly. (laughs) And then for me to like get a call two days later that I got the offer, it was like, Oh, wow. 
So um, like even internally not presenting myself from a position of strength because of imposter syndrome um, and just my previous experiences, like being underleveled or being underpaid was something that um, I wish that people like I, my contribution to community efforts is to really give people the language for them to be able to articulate their strengths. Cause I am someone who doesn't really believe like you need all these certs, you need all of these like things on paper, uh, especially as I am a two-time grad school dropout. So I have not <laughs> gotten my master's degree yet. And that's something that sometimes I'm a little insecure about, but um, I realized that being able to demonstrate my knowledge and the wealth of information that I've collected and that exists within me and really leaning into my own creativity is how I'm hoping not to continue carrying imposter syndrome with me as I continue to progress throughout my career. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't, don't feel too bad about being the two times. I'm a six-time undergrad dropout, so... <laughs> I only dropped out one time and I ain't trying it again. <laughs> it's rough. The older you get to then have to go back to like this very rigid structure. Also, academics, academic situations also really don't care about you. Well, not some mm -hmm. grad schools, but undergrad does not care about you as a person. Like I had to mm. work in undergrad. Um, I was dealing with uh, learning what seasonal depression is because Boston was very different than Texas. Uh, there, like, there's like certain memories that I think everyone has. Mine always relate to nature. <laughs> uh, mm. I was like on the shuttle on our campus at 3.30 in the afternoon, going from one end of campus back to my dorm room. And I just was astonished that the sun was setting at 3.30 in the afternoon. I came from Texas, where in the winter, the sun still sets at like seven. So mm -hmm. d like no one at the university caring about your these people's mental health. Um, if you have to work like, dealing with all of this unnecessary reading. I actually studied abroad twice while I was at school. One, because studying abroad was cheaper than actually going to my university. So mm -hmm. my scholarship covered studying abroad completely, whereas it did not cover me being on campus. But our study abroad programs were situated that internships are built into them. And uh, that was the only time I made dean's list because the workload actually is tailored to support you working in a full-time internship. And it was like, so y'all really have the opportunity to make mm -hmm. working adults successful. You just choose not to. Mm -hmm. And that like has really just put a bad taste in my mouth for academia in general, um, especially for people of color, first gens or people that don't have the luxury of not working to be able to go to school. Mm. I never thought about that, to be honest. That's a dip. That's a but it's bringing up strain. memories. Yeah, it's bringing up memories yeah. of what I went through when I went to college. So same. It's pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> now, how does your international relations degree correlate to uh, your current role in data analytics? Um, the only way I can 
say it correlated in any way is that it taught me how to think about things from multiple perspectives. Um, in international relations, the whole premise is that everyone has a goal and you have to build relationships across countries, whether it be economic, social, technological, um, military relationships. So everyone has a goal and everyone needs to evaluate what they can contribute, what trade-off they can make. So concessions, uh, where alliances should be formed, where they should do something individually. So it is a very multi-variable space. And I think that has been one of the key skills that it gave me that applies to data because you're constantly juggling multiple variables variables, whether you are looking at what variables go into creating a metric, um, what variables you're going to use to um, give or give information, like when you're building a dashboard, what are the variables you want to highlight for your user group? So whoever is going to be using that specific dashboard, is it exploratory? Is it operational? Um, being able to consider all of the values that go into any type of data structure or data output is really, I think, one of the defining things I take away from international relations. Mm -hmm. Good. I feel like that probably or propelled you. That seems like that's something mm -hmm. that you probably would have had to develop, but because you did it in your degree, that kind of put you a step ahead. So that's uh, that worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It also actually very much ties into um, what I do now, which is I focus on product inclusion and equity. Mm. And so most bank companies or tech companies in general really focus on scale. So if when you all are interviewing wherever you want to go, um, most of those companies are going to ask you questions about scaling, increasing profits, um, really expanding scope. However, Product inclusion and equity is, I can't think of the word, but it's in direct opposition to scale because it means focusing on more niche groups and niche communities. And that is a more altruistic position uh, that companies need to take if they actually want to fix those kinds of pro problems in their social media platforms or their search mm -hmm. engines or whatever it may be. Um, so that frame of thinking has really helped me hone in on what are the variables that actually co uh, contribute to inequity and a lack of inclusion on in these product spaces. Oh, that's an interesting take because I know with DEI, you always want to look at what's already there. So having to point out what's not there, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Reverse data analytics. <laughs> <laughs> right. Literally, exactly. it's exploratory analysis. So, um, going, yeah, exploratory analysis. And you need to understand, like, where do the people characteristics come in? What are, like, the operational technical characteristics? And data is a pretty great place for unearthing those inequities because you just have access to information. And you can plot it. You can graph it. You can do statistical analysis on it, whatever you want. And you can make it tell you all the ways we're being great. But mm -hmm. if you notice the trends and patterns where there are drop-offs or where there are anomalies or where there are 
um, inconclusive results, those are usually like the pain points you actually want to solve for societally, at least not necessarily. Eh, Okay. At your company too, because that's going to be the antithesis of your success is if you have like metrics dropping off. But uh, from the social perspective of it, those are really great ways for you to unearth inequities that are happening. Before before we go to the next question, I just want to say your presentation skills are like dope. Like yeah, 10 out of thank 10. you. I would agree. Like, you need to you need to tell Google to make you come out with like the Google official how to present projects course. <laughs> Let you be the lead. <laughs> <clears throat> Yes, yes. Uh, success. I, that's my you know, success Google. metric. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Google, what was your experience like getting into Google um, as far mm. as like, any roadblocks that you faced um, during the hiring phase? Ooh, uh, it was very long. Um, so I think I, so the initial interviews technically are only supposed to have one phone screening, but the positions that I was originally put up for, uh, the recruiter had reached out to me after I attended a Google event. And um, those positions were more policy focused. So when I was meeting with the hiring managers for those, they were like, "Eh, I don't really think this is the best fit. Uh, The great thing, though, is if you have a good recruiter, they'll reach out to people in their network to see where they can move you. Because Google really focuses on the Googliness. So they want good people working for them. So mm-hmm. if at any stage they're, they like you or you have a good uh, interview relationship, I guess. So that momentary relationship where they're like, yeah, they work, they would be great here no matter what opportunity they're in. Uh, recruiters will help to find opportunities for you. So I had a couple initial phone screenings with different teams. So that kind of elongated the process. But once I actually found a team or an area that could be a really good fit, that part was went really fast. I only had one other phone screening interview that was actually probably the only interview I had related to metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my question was along the lines of pick your favorite Google product, which I, when people are interviewing or when I refer people, I always say, find at least one Google product you really love and really use, because that's going to be the key for you to frame all of your questions around or when they give you an option for selecting a Google product to grow, scale, um, deprecate something that will give you an edge because you know that product in and out because you mm-hmm. use it. So mine was Gmail. Um, use Gmail so much, and the same thing. <laughs> what I did not expect was the next question, which was, um, choose if you want to develop a new classifier for Gmail or if you want to enhance a classifier for Gmail. And I was like yo, what on my resume Mm -hmm. told you I know anything about classifier? (laughs) (laughs) But but I know how like spam filters work. So I uh, started like going in about like using keyword optimization in emails, uh, which then like allowed me to think more creatively about like using use cases. So if I usually get emails about dogs, I have a dog 
And I start randomly seeing cat emails, uh, like keywords within cats, kittens, being able to build out uh, a dictionary of terms that may potentially be spam is an Mm. opportunity. So refining that. So um, that was like, if this is the tempo, I don't know what's going to happen next, Um, Mm -hmm. which I didn't. And that goes back to like, why I felt imposter syndrome, because I would say that I came in as like a role profile hire, which Mm -hmm. you have that in consulting too, which basically means you have a set of skills and a personality that we really want and can be very useful, but Mm -hmm. it's not for a targeted team. There are pros and cons to both types of interview processes. So role profiles give you an opportunity to just break into a company and really navigate the internal system. You at least are getting in, you get that company on your resume, you get the benefits that come with them too. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can take your time really understanding where you want to move around from there. The benefits of targeted interviews for a specific team are that most of your interview questions are going to be more directed towards the skills you'll actually be using within that team. So you can demonstrate a higher level of role-related knowledge. Uh, Going back to, if you don't get, or let's do the cons in reverse order. So targeted profile roles, if you don't get that role, Uh, there isn't very much wiggle room for you then to be able to interview or at least your recruiter be able to uh, recommend you for other pipelines and other opportunities because Mm -hmm. your interview was so specific to a team and a specific skill set that they were looking for. On the role profile hire, the cons are there's a lot of opportunity for bias to come into the interview process because they're testing you on a range of skills. So role-related knowledge then kind of goes down a little bit because each team may need something different. So Mm -hmm. um, an example is one of the interviewers that I had during what they call the full loop, which is the um, multi-interview steps that most companies now call the full loop, whatever. I, it was called the on-site when I was interviewing. But my on-site interviews, I had someone from the ads team interviewing me. And their question started out, what would you do if an advertiser called you and said that they think someone hacked their account? What in my resume told you I know how to deal with <laughs> hacking accounts? Like, I don't understand. So there's op- those kinds of questions that are like completely irrelevant to your skill set. Mm. They are marking how you would think about a problem. Uh, so my answer was something along the lines of like, I would tell them to change the password. Like, mm-hmm. what else do people tell you to do right. when your account's hacked? And I just like struggled through that interview, Mm -hmm. which then kind of set a tone. Like it, it, I noticed a very tangible pivot in how I was feeling about the interviews moving forward, because I was like, yeah, I know nothing about this. Is this what the next interview is going to be like? Mm -hmm. Um, So I started questioning my own skill set. So that's kind of like the downside of the role profiles is they're very, um, not direct. And it creates opportunity for you to question yourself, 
for bias to come in on the interviewer's part if they don't think you have enough role-related knowledge. Um, but again, there are pros and cons to each of them. You so you that, have to know. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Do, do you think that that is more so like a tactic on their part to see how much you're going to stay confident throughout the process, even if you, you know, kind of like to slip you up and to see if you're going to hold that frame? Do you think that that's, that's one of those things that they were trying to do? It definitely can be. Um, that particular interviewer actually works in that space with advertisers. So I think mm. for her, it was to see if I would be a fit for her team because okay. I was coming mm. in as a role profile. Mm. Like I had a set of data skills that all these different teams needed. So it was trying to see where I would fit the best for okay. those data types. Um, but to your point, that is definitely, um, I would say as I become more senior in my interview processes, there are a lot more opportunities for people that are trying to see, can you confidently defend your answer? Mm -hmm. um, especially in data, like if someone tells you to select a success metric, uh, why did you sit? So why did you select that metric? And you being able to not only justify your answer, but defend your answer when they're giving you counter metric or mm -hmm. when they're telling you other metrics that may drop if you stay steadfast to your metric. So then you have to go into talking about the trade-offs for those kinds of things. Okay. okay. That's a good point. I will remember that. That seems like something that'll be helpful in the future. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And for your, when you did get the role, was it your first choice or did you have to transfer essentially teams? Uh, no, I'm still technically on the same team that I started off with. So I, I work in Google. Well, at that point, I worked across different harms, something we call risks to user trust. So mm. I came in at a really interesting time because I joined right before COVID became a global pandemic. So at that point, we were heavily focused on like misinformation and stuff related to the 2020 election, as mm -hmm. was every other company. Um, and then coronavirus hit. And then you had like a massive bomb of new types of threats. Like there have typically been anti-vax content, I'm sure, as you all know, around like autism and uh, the people that correlate autism with uh, early childhood vaccines. Mm -hmm. So then being seeing misinformation around that, seeing a lot of racism as everyone was around like uh, am amalgamating the coronavirus with like Asian Americans and um, the, all of those kinds of like ethnic related risks to people or promotion of hate speech or promotion amongst misinformation around that DEI realm that was really tough. Um, and then of course, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. So then we saw mm -hmm. a rise in um, issues and risks to user trust around DEI. So I was working across all of these uh, risks to user trust for majority of my time at Google, but I recently pitched a role. Uh, <laughs> I created a job description for uh, an analyst specifically to focus on product inclusion and equity, which was an offshoot of the work I started doing around um, DEI 
and the manifestation of DEI issues on Google search specifically. So I'm technically on the same team because I work with all of the same people. However, I now specialize in building out data infrastructure to be able to collect information around uh, gaps in product inclusion and equity and like offensive results. And not only the infrastructure for capturing it, but then being able to analyze it, generate insights, and then develop recommendations for end teams, product teams, leadership on how we can make Google search more, diversify the results around Google search, um, make it more inclusive, so less misrepresentation of ethnic identities or nationalities or religions, and make it more equitable in terms of getting people from all different walks of life accurate information based on whatever their query search is. Okay. That sounds interesting because Google search is probably my most visited URL Mm -hmm. at this point. (laughs) Yeah, I hate Bing. Oh my gosh. I don't even... that, I'm a system. I'm a system that's still, like, yeah, I don't like being either. It's not just searching for something. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it just all just blows yes. up. And blows the hell. I always <laughs> laugh when I see the Duck Duck Go um, advertisements that are like oh directly targeted at Google, <laughs> and it's like <laughs> okay, but I like Google better still. <laughs> yeah. And I tried to I tried to give bigness this little saw. I was like, all right, cool, I'm on edge. I'm a, I tried out Bing for like two weeks, and I was like, Dude, <laughs> I can't find none of the solutions. Because I'm in IT, so I need to ask questions. Mm. And every time I try to ask something, like it just doesn't give me the answer. And as soon as I go to Google, <laughs> it's like, bro, the answer exactly, right it's right there. Mm-hmm. Hey, I vouch for Google. You know, it's crazy. I vouch for the Google data analytics course so hard that three people from Google actually reached out to me. And one of them, I believe was, it. Yeah, and one of them it's, was one of the people that contributed to the course. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. That yeah. is, yeah. and it's like we're real people. I think I saw like a tweet the other day of like your friend that works at Google isn't better than you, and it's like we're not. We really are <laughs> everyday people that happen to work at this company. Mm-hmm. Um, but like no, we want. No. We, no, they they look at y'all like the like the top dogs, like the Jay Z's and the Beyonce's, like <laughs> the Jay Z's. Yeah, we really no one in tech is. Everybody's figuring it out together. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just Thanks. maybe you had there had like a set of things that really have to work together for you to get into these companies, and it doesn't make you a better candidate. And it doesn't make you better qualified. Like. I, in my um, onboarding experience, there was actually a guy who was in jail and didn't get a degree and started using, like was able to use Google as part of like an education rehabilitation program while he was in jail and just like learned IT stuff and learned more about Google's infrastructure and classifiers and this and now he was in my onboarding class with me. No degree, no anything. He learned how to use Google from jail. So it really is a set of things that work together. There is no like tiering of people. There's no elite. There's no more educated, no more certificates, no more even how to talk about issues. Because 
um, that's something that like you'll probably navigate is language barriers working mm -hmm. at international companies. So being able to communicate is something that is very um, in an independent factor. Like, yes, you need to be able to communicate, but articulate or at the polish of which you articulate things may not always be what you think is like the best or you know all those presentation skills like one blah 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 two blah blah, blah three the things that they like teach you of how to talk about things um are variable especially again working with diverse audiences so it's really about who you are and i think people underestimate like are you a good person if I'm a good person and I'm confident in my ability to learn something that I think will get you very far in a lot of these interviews. Great. Yeah, that's good advice. I appreciate that. And then I have one more bit to touch on. I know it's a little bit finicky, but you mentioned um, having to work during your undergrad. So can you talk about your salary negotiation experience as far as coming from somebody who had to supplement then and then coming over into a lucrative um, field such as tech? Oh, yes. Um, so that first uh, job that I told you that I was underpaid. Mm -hmm. So I was working at a think tank, um, not being paid very well. So that kind of had me in like a poverty mindset going into my first company going, especially because I had to work to like get by in college to be able to afford all my books, live far away from my family. If I had to travel for an interview, like scraping by. So then to have this very expensive degree and go into the workforce and not being able to make enough money to like live on my own and not even on my own, like live with roommates. I actually slept on my aunt's couch for like eight months when I was trying to get into like my first full, full-time role. Um, so having that, the burden of like, what if I become poor? what if I actually made a terrible decision in what I chose to study and the skills that I went to go in? I felt like I just needed a job. So I tried to negotiate. Um, and I was making, I, and basically, okay. I, they offered me 40,000, which also they were like, Oh, there's opportunity for more money. If you do overtime, why do I have to do overtime to make the right. amount of money my peers are making? But like mm -hmm. now I can look back from a position of privilege and think that at that point it was like, okay, 40,000 is like not that much money. Um, but I guess I can just work harder or whatever. It's, that's how I like reconciled it to myself because mm -hmm. when I asked for more, the recruiter literally called me back like 10 minutes later and it was like, no, it's a take it or leave it offer. So I was like, whatever. Okay. I guess I'll take it. Mm -hmm. Um, so then working, I worked a bunch of overtime. So I ended up making probably in overtime plus bonus. I probably made like 50 or 51 my first full year at that company. Um, which by the time I was promoted and blah, 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 I ended up making 60,000 there. So then I started really like hearing about jumping companies, which is very controversial. Uh, mm -hmm. Different people have different opinions about that. But 
not only did my company become acquired and I no longer just jived with the new company's mission, um, I was like, you know, I really want to have a role that's more formalized in data. Like I do a lot of data right now, but I'd like to just have the data title related to this work. So that's when I went to Booz Allen and I was able to negotiate like a 20 or 25% increase in my salary. So it just like kept going for from there. But mm-hmm. um, even with Google, negotiating was very difficult. I went through three rounds of negotiations and it got to a point where I had to do some like internal trade-offs because at that point I had a great offer from Deloitte. I had only been at Deloitte for like maybe six months when the recruiter reached out to me from Google. And I was like, I've never interviewed at a tech company. Like, let's see where it can go. Um, I didn't necessarily plan to leave. It was just like, am I good enough for Mm. this kind of company? Um, And then, yeah, I had to do a lot of trade-off negotiation because the, if you account for all of the like taxes and everything, let's take equity out of the situation. Let's just talk about base salary. Um, I was making the same amount of money in DC working at Deloitte in my base salary that I would make in California because of how high the taxes are and stuff. So then it became a question of like, do I want the brand name? Is there longevity in this opportunity? Uh, Of course, you know, stock is, I advocate for stock, even though people can talk about like, oh, tech is bad, this and the third. I think for people of color, stock is a way to generate wealth. And mm-hmm. that is incredibly important to me. Like in this side hustle culture, um, I may, I feel like side hustle culture is very synonymous to that first company telling me I can work overtime to make the same amount of money as everyone, right. all of my peers. I don't think you should be stretching yourself that thin. I think it then starts eroding your mental and emotional health, mm-hmm. but then erodes your core work, which is your big profit like where you're gaining most of your profit from. So I had to start like thinking about like, okay, if I take this base salary cut to get X amount of stock, uh, what is the value of that stock to me? What, how much am I saving in my retirement right now? Can this augment that? So I had to do a bunch of mental gymnastics to figure out if just the opportunity that's in front of me meant more. I've really been thinking about making a a heat map actually of like all of the variables I consider and highlight in all of the companies I've worked for and highlighting, um, doing a heat map of which of the variables were most important to me at each of my companies. Because I think Mm -hmm. people go into salary and negotiation as if it's like a, like it's, it's very silent, a singular decision. And it's not at all mm-hmm. negotiating, you're negotiating, um, thinking about your benefits, you are negotiating, thinking about uh, the sustainability or the health of the company you're signing up are their increase in how are their stocks doing? What is their vision? Is their vision profitable? Like, what are the areas they're trying to branch out into? So you're, you take a lot of things into account when you are making a decision. And sometimes those decisions really do come in taking a salary cut. Like taking, if you 
negotiated much higher stock, for example, and were willing to take a lower base salary. The question becomes, how are you using that stock to your advantage? Right. And like, is that okay for you? Are you at a stage in your life where you can minimize your current um, finances or current pay things in order to invest more heavily in your long-term future by getting maybe like another 50,000 in stock. So it's a very personal thing. And Twitter makes it seem like you shouldn't accept no job (laughs) offer that don't come with this or that or this. Like, no, that is not how you should be telling (laughs) people to negotiate. Yeah, I agree. Um, So Going back to like Google and you talking about like how people, you guys are just regular folks and being a good person trumps anything else that people might have an assumption of. Um, what advice would you have for others trying to get into Google? Mm, what advice would I have for people trying to get into Google? Um, I think part, if you wanted like a, a one-way way and not really having to do I mean, you still have to do the networking thing, but I would say find events, I think, or like if you are in a city that has a Google office, uh, trying to see if those Google offices specifically have like meetup groups or if they're hosting events like the Boulder, Colorado office did are on meetup and they had like a resume editing session with Googlers. So I think finding more unorthodox ways of meeting more Googlers is very helpful, not only for understanding where you want to be in Google. Like I've had a couple people reach out to me recently about strat strategy and operations roles. And it's like, I work in trust and safety. I don't know anything about that division. I can try and find someone that can give you more insight. Um, There's certain things that I can do, like follow up with your recruiter, but I don't hold weight in that division because that's not the area I work in. So trying to find people that work at Google that are more aligned in what you do, as well as if you sign up for or connect with recruiters on LinkedIn, they usually post more just like meetup virtual opportunities that are going on. So I would say if you aren't really a person that is very like, skilled or heavily into the one-on-one networking, being able to go through the events is something that really uh, plays a role. And to Jamar's point, uh, going through the CERT programs, I actually have a friend that did what is one of the people who developed and is in the program manager, uh, Google certificate. So going through that actually creates a an entire pipeline, not only to recruiters, but to other peers that may eventually work at Google. It's cool. I didn't even know like they had those type of events going on. So take a minute. Marsh just gave me an idea. We need to throw all about the data Miami event and invite some Googlers. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> yeah. No, it, so I don't know awesome Atlanta. Though. I'm actually in Houston. Uh, so, but uh, good suggestion though. We'll figure that out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> there are people in Houston because we have a huge He's lying again. Office. He's keeping oh, yeah. from before. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good. Yeah, well, I was good. You, got the, you got the cold. That's what you makes it scary. He's so good. 
<laughs> not bamboozled, I guess. So easily. It's just his life. He does this. <laughs> uh, I'm a comedian part time. Don't mind me. <laughs> but uh, are you saying you you went to one in Atlanta? Oh no, I I moved to Atlanta recently. So gotcha, um, gotcha. Uh, tr- we're I'm trying to figure out what this ecosystem looks like actually because I Tanika actually you all interviewed her 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 she. I think it's great if you find like a data person. She is my data person. I mean, we have a very, we're best friends. We both live in Atlanta now. Um, but yes. I would say if I had like one piece of advice for anyone in the data field, it's find your data person, find the person that's interested in the same data things that you are, because not only can you share resources, but as you guys continue to grow. So I'm at Google now. We both were at Booz Allen. We both were at Deloitte in different realms of both of those companies. So we were able to share internally. But as we've Mm. grown in our careers, she went to Mozilla. Now she works back at the Navy, where we both also worked when we were at Booz Allen. Um, You have a built-in friend and accountability partner. So like we used to host events, like meetup stuff in DC for people interested in data. We actually started a nonprofit in DC called Blacks in uh, Technology and Consulting. Mm-hmm. And through that, we were able to do like pro bono data work for black owned businesses in the Washington DC area. So if you have like that one person that's passionate about stuff with you, you all can build your local community and then people will come to you. So being able to throw mm. like, and we weren't even doing like just, you know, these formal like give back to the community events. We threw happy hours. That happy yeah. hours are the best way to get people out there. It's the best mm-hmm. way to bring a friend to meet some other friends. So I'm yeah. trying to see what that ecosystem that's, looks like in Atlanta. That's uh, that's actually how I started all about the data and met these wonderful people, except for Jafar. I knew him since I was a baby, literally. Not even over exaggerating. Not since um, a baby for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I'm only 10 years old. What do you think? What do you want? Yeah, like, um, <laughs> yeah, your Discord, your yeah, uh, data Discord, Discord that's um, the popping community. On, honestly, the Discord introduced um, a lot of people to each other, right? Like Shanice and Lucky mm. and Jafar met each other through the Discord. Um, yeah, it was all so a challenge, a challenge like when I first made the Discord before it blew up to the 3,000 plus followers that it had now, and it was a little bit more controlled, um, <laughs> I challenged people to get into groups and do data projects together. And so, exactly. Yeah, I cha- and you know, some people took the challenge, and it's like through that Discord, people have actually become, you know, friends, I guess you could say. Um, and every day new people are, and it's like people all around the world you know um like one of our board members is in nigeria you know and it's like we all, we all became like a family through this through this app so um yeah and you know and like you said we don't just only talk about data we have a fitness section a mental health section uh, we just sometimes we just come on zoom just to talk about anything so um yeah it's awesome but and that's really soul soothing i don't remember who i was listening to but someone um 
some author or something was saying how someone had asked them, how do you recommend like beating imposter syndrome or something along those lines? And the interviewee said that community is how they beat imposter syndrome. And I think the discord is phenomenal for that. Having people that affirm you and are invested in your growth and development is really how you tackle imposter syndrome because you, even though whatever the situation is that may make you feel inadequate based on your skill set, you then have a home to come back to and people yeah. to soothe that, soothe your wounds. Cause it is a shot to the ego and the heart when like you bomb an interview or uh, you wanted to talk about something and everything just disappeared from your mind and you no longer can articulate your ideas effectively yeah. to like someone you may have wanted to impress. Yeah, uh, that's that's big facts. And, you know, we even have mock interviews in there and we're actually about to be more consistent. A volunteer from Amazon actually volunteer to host more mock interviews in there. So if you're not in the discord, you're missing out because we got a lot of big things going and we trying to build the community, so you got to come through. But um, we are at the top of the hour. We're just going to get uh, just a few more questions in, and then we'll get ready to wrap up. Um, so I know you um, you talked about your past jobs a lot, um, working at Deloitte and so forth. What, what would you say some of the differences that you noticed since you've been at Google compared to when you were doing consulting? <laughs> Um, I thought because tech by nature is very process oriented and infrastructure based, I assumed moving into tech companies, they would have like ecosystem and infrastructure and processes like down packed, not the case. It, most of these tech companies are very engineering focused. And I mean, it makes sense. You need the engineers to build the products that you now have a company based off of. But because of that, there are a lot of disparate teams and there isn't really formalized training for how to be at least a project manager for your own project work, no matter where you are. So um, I was brought in to lead an insights work stream. So that's kind of why I worked across many cross-cutting themes um, in risk to user trust when I first joined Google. And I remember I couldn't find an organization chart, literally anywhere. I didn't know who I was to report to. I didn't know Mm -hmm. who stakeholders were. I didn't know what partnering teams were. And then if I found a partnering team, I couldn't find an organizational chart there. So like something as basic as a chain of command, I was like, why do y'all not have these things? Would you say that's what made you get your uh, CSM? Like, like, did you? No, I would say I, so contrasting that to consulting, which is extremely programmatic. Do you have a proposal for which you've, you've committed to? executing a project or developing this process or uh, setting up this data infrastructure. So you have guidelines in a proposal of things you need to accomplish, which lends itself to a more um, programmatic approach to 
all like companies or to your company in general, because you have a guideline of what you've committed to. Um, You don't necessarily have guidelines in tech, uh, especially because again, it's engineering focused. So it's, oh, I have this idea. Let's see if I can build it out. I can test it. I can do this, blah, blah, blah. Who cares if I document my journey along the way? I'm just going to prototype this out. Um, (laughs) And so I got my CSM because I had all of the skills based on my consulting experience. I just didn't have what I would say is the recognition for Mm -hmm. those skills. So something my team uh, very quickly became aware of and people would comment all the time when I was at Google was that I have really great like programmatic structural skills. So I was writing documents for everything I did. When I build dashboards, I would write a proposal. Then I would write, do user acceptance testing. I would create surveys to get user feedback for my acceptance testing. And when I modified things, I then had like feature requests that I would check off as I modified my dashboard. So everything was very systematic in my approach. And it was like, all right, but technically I'm not supposed to be doing those things. You as a company have decided that program management is its own ladder. And therefore the things that I'm doing that work on that ladder, um, I'm not really getting credit for. And that kind of sucks. So I got my scrum certification. So at least people can know, even if I may not be doing scrum every single day, I have the skills that align to this. It's just that my current role may not really allow me to demonstrate the expertise that I have for this kind of work. Yeah, that's, that's what's up. I I got my CSM too, for that same reason. But um, so we're going to wrap up with this last question here. And it's a big one. Are you ready? Yes. Are you sure? Okay, not so sure, but. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, no, no, that's pretty simple though. What's what? What you know? You, you have a lot of great success. Your your story is amazing. Your journey mm-hmm. is you know inspirational. Definitely motivating, yeah. uh, especially for a future Google like like me because I know I will be getting hired at Google. So okay, we'll man. Next it. But nice. what's next for you? <laughs> on your journey? Hmm. I would really like to become a thought leader and a champion for equity and inclusion. I really like this space because it's a a phenomenal intersection between people that live kind of on the fringes of society. Um, most uh, going back to most tech companies, the concept of scale and scalability really um, it may it lends itself to heavily focusing on current paradigms, which focus on amplifying information or people that come from predominant societies um, for whatever that means in whatever part of the world you are. And as people like you are creating more content, I think there's a lot of spaces where we're not doing great by you across the industry, whether it be Google and how they organize the world's information or how Twitter is participating in the social conversation. There is a lot of work that needs to be done to be able to push forward the 
information that is now being created now that more people have access to stable internet, have access to um, writing blog posts and creating tweets. So we are creating information where a lot of these predominant communities were able to create information long before us. And therefore a lot of our infrastructures continue to support some of that historic information and isn't leaving very much room for people that speak to the niche groups to really come forward. And I think you can tackle that from a lot of different places. And I really want to become more versed in how to tackle that from many different places, as well as being a conduit for integrating more sociological research, anthropological research, user experience design all together with data and product teams and engineering teams. So being someone that sits at that intersection of being able to talk to the engineers of how they can correct products to fix some of these issues, but also having the people that have committed their lives in the like academic realm to be able to inform me how I can better, better translate this to engineers and being able to show the impact in the data realm up here. Okay. Awesome. I, all about the data, we definitely support that diversity, inclusion, mm-hmm. you know, uh, community. Actually, I, re- I really like that position. I'm not going to lie. My bad, Jim. My bad, Jim. I was looking it up <laughs> and I, I was like, wait, this looks like something I'd enjoy to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a, um, you know, and uh, I've really been looking into the community builder community management roles lately because after building all about the data, I definitely do enjoy it. Um, no, this does not mean I don't want to do data anymore. I definitely will be doing data, but I have definitely picked up um, a joy for community building as well. But uh, none of these are not absent of data. I think okay. you always are going to have to prove yourself or even monitoring the health of a community. What is your attrition rate for a community? What is your acquisition for uh, a new member? What are the views that you're getting on your tweets? Should you be using Facebook groups versus Twitter? What gets out to the most of your audience? So your view rate, your click-through rate. So nothing any of you all are talking about is absent of data. Data really uh, supports all progress in any role or can make a role more you more successful in a role yeah big facts big facts uh definitely appreciate you coming on here so i say and dropping mm-hmm. all these gems on us we gonna charge for this <laughs> session 99 dollars <laughs> $99 for the podcast session if you want all these gems we want to put in 10 seconds out for you <laughs> uh, but uh but we gonna get pleasure meeting fun. y'all today you as well likewise yeah, exactly. we, we, we enjoy yeah. your presence Definitely. you know um and we just go that we get to the part of our show where we just do a tech titan where we just highlight one tech individual doing big things for the community and we got the queen of the tech titans in the building, Shanice. What it do? The drum roll, y'all. Yeah. Uh, where the drum roll at for the tech oh. titan? It's fine. So this episode's tech titan goes out to Mary Awodale. Uh, she operates one of the biggest tech boot camps that's ran by a black woman, which is my tech best friend. Um, that program helps people get various jobs in the tech industry, whether that be through Salesforce, um, data, 
business intelligence, cybersecurity. Um, Mary her, and her team has personalized learning tracks for each of those, specializa each of those specializations. Um, she also connects potential can uh, candidates with recruiters and organizations in the industry, um, securing 100 plus new jobs placements during 2021 alone. Um, nice. She recently partnered with Twitch. So her community uh, it continues to grow and change lives each day. Um, I've seen like <laughs> from the beginning, like her program and how it's been helping lots and lots of people, especially women get into tech. Mm -hmm. So Mary, we appreciate you and we see all that you do and we thank you for your contribution. Thank Big you. fat shouts to my tech best friend. That's my best friend. That's my best friend. But that's my best friend. That's my best friend. But once again, Sasha, we appreciate you coming on. We're going to make sure we drop all your social yeah, media in the chat. Make sure y'all follow and connect with Sasha if you're trying to get in data or if you're just trying to meet a dope individual in general in tech and a whole Googler at the same time. So that's what's up. We appreciate everybody tuning in to All About the Data. Make sure you join the Discord if you haven't already. 3,000 plus members. Join us on SQL Saturdays if you're trying to get your SQL skills up. Me and Sequel, we not beefing no more. We became, you know, we became acquaintance. We acquaintance now. We ain't beefing no more just for the update. So um, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. I see we almost to 1,000. So let's get there. Get us to 1,000. And subscribe on Spotify, Google, Apple. We about to be everywhere. Just subscribe everywhere. Facebook, <laughs> LinkedIn, just go everywhere. All market. All market. All market. Right? But all with that being said, we're going to close this episode <laughs> out. All about the data, baby. Peace.